How should we measure religious and spiritual adherence? Rachel B. Gross, Assistant Professor of Jewish Studies at San Francisco State University, proposes cultural markers, including the New Delhi Movement, in her new book, Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Hi, we're here today with Rachel B. Gross. She has written a fabulous book called Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice. And everybody has to read it. It is really fascinating. And I want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Liz. And thanks for your kind words about my book. Well, they aren't kind. They're just true. So (laughs) I really was fascinated by the book, by your ability to talk about cultural practices that also reflect a religious sensibility So talk to me a little bit about how you even thought about that, because that seems to be kind of not the normal way to think about about religion. Exactly. So this book is about American Jewish nostalgia. And I think about American Jewish nostalgia as a religious practice. For me to call as a religious studies scholar, I'm building on a whole field of scholarship that helps us expand the way we think about religion and think about it really broadly. I have a whole definition of how I think, what I think religion is, but most simply, I think that religion is what is meaningful to folks. To me, I think that how I think thinking about religion really broadly helps us think about the ways that we form meaning in our lives as individuals. And it helps us think about the ways in which we're connected to broader communities that create that help us give narratives that give structure and meaning to our lives. So I wanted to know. <laughs> how you chose these things. You talk about historic preservation of certain structures that have religious significance. You talk about food and you talk about children's books. And I, you know, there's very disparate things and yet they all fit together. There seems to be a definite common thread that um, flows through them. How did you choose those things? And were there things that you left out? Mm, Thanks for that question. So I thought about the ways that American Jews think and feel about the, the great wave of immigration of Jews to the United States. Jews have been in the United States as long as any other Europeans have been in the Americas. But the vast majority of 
American Jews today are descended from folks who came to the United States at the turn of the century, from about the 1880s to 1924. And since about the 1970s, American Jews have been creating cultural institutions that look back on that time period and that teach a kind of nostalgic longing for them. So I was looking at institutions that get at the ways that we feel about our family history and that connect us to broader communities, connect American Jews to broader communities. So Jewish genealogical societies do that and Jewish genealogical institutions of various kinds. Historic synagogues that are used as museums do that. Children's books and dolls help us tell stories to our children and connect our families to bigger stories. And then I looked finally at artisanal delis in particular that reframe the way that American Jews have been telling their stories. I think, I think you think a lot about the way food can tell a story. And I love the way you think about that. And I think of delis as a place that American Jews tell their stories. And I was looking at the ways that that new restaurateurs and entrepreneurs were flipping the script and didn't just want to reproduce old deli styles, but wanted to wanted to put a new spin on it and think about that narrative history that delis have been telling in a new way. I also thought it was really interesting the way you talked about people who were looking at sustainability and some of the kind of modern concepts that have to do with the environment and how that seemed to be something that people could embrace as a Jewish concept as opposed to some of the more traditional things we think of as a deli, which is kind of factory-made, produced pastrami and, you know, things like that, so that you're really bringing back an older idea about protecting the, the world in the food. I thought that was an interesting idea. Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking at some really interesting folks who are across the country from New York to where I am here in San Francisco and, and all the way in between as well. And they have looked at delis and said, you know, delis rely on mass produced, really commercial meat products Mm -hmm. and the horrors of the slaughterhouses and, and all kinds of things. We know how bad that is for the environment. And they have started to say, what if we can take this food that really tells a story of American Jewish immigration to the United States from Central and Eastern Europe at the turn of the century, and then how it developed in the United States. And it became really commercialized and it became reliant on industrialized foods. What if we can bring this cuisine into contemporary food trends of sustainability and local foods and tell a new story? One that goes back to ideas about imagined ideas, sometimes real and sometimes imagined ideas of what food was like in the old country when you might be relying, certainly relying on more on local foods. And they Mm -hmm. said, what if we can serve smaller portions rather than those huge deli portions that we we can all imagine? Where you have to order a second couple of slices of bread so that you can make two sandwiches out of it. Yes. Exactly.
exactly, exactly. So I see them engaging in a kind of nostalgia for the old country, for Europe, and for how American Jewish food developed in the United States, and then playing with it. It's a kind of playful nostalgia. I think if you, what I love about it is I think if you open an artisanal deli, you you probably have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> you know that there's something a little bit silly about it, at least a little bit silly. But I think they understand that they're doing important work. Um, they're doing important work both in terms of, of the restaurant business and, and getting their customers to think about where their food comes from and the effect it has on the environment. And also telling a story of, about what it means to be an American Jew in the United States and telling that story through food. It's also, I, I think, interesting that it comes at, at a time that it fits into kind of the modern world. And that's to me is one of the things I always say about food. Like when we talk about the food of New Orleans, which is probably more influenced by the Sephardi than the Ashkenazi, because they came really early in like the 18th century. We are always talking about how every time there's a new wave of immigration, it changes the food. And if your food continues to change and people are open to allowing that to happen, then you don't have this ossified food that nobody wants to eat anymore. And I think that it becomes really important because rather than let the deli basically die, there are fewer and fewer of them. This is a way to modernize them. At the same time, it's a touchstone, a religious touchstone at the same time. And I, I think that that is just one of those, those great stories. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I love the way the, the restauranters and entrepreneurs that I interviewed for this book are, are thinking about their work and thinking about, they're really building on, on other cuisines that have done this. Italian-American folks have done this. Lots of Asian-American chefs have done this. They've thought about taking their cuisine and really thinking about how it developed in the United States and saying not just that like Italian American food is a bad version of Italian food, right? But right. it's its own tradition. Right. It's its own thing, yeah. Exactly. And elevating it. And and they've been doing that for for the deli and for other types of Ashkenazi American food, which is really exciting. So have you looked at all into some of the courses that have been offered? This is a probably a very COVID, you know, isolationist kind of thing. But I've been noticing that there are lots and lots of people actually teaching courses that they're calling, learn about your heritage, take this course in Ashkenazi food. And I think that that kind of fits into the same kind of structure as the, the visits to delis. Because even though I think there is a new deli movement, it's not everywhere that you can find that kind of a new deli. But now that you can take a course from anywhere, since all these Zoom courses have just kind of popped up everywhere, I think that's a very interesting phenomenon because it can reach actually more people. 
Absolutely. I agree. And what I'm so interested in with food and, and maybe you are too, is I'm not just interested in the food itself, but in the stories we tell oh, about food. Absolutely. It's like, I don't care what you're teaching. I just like the idea that you're teaching it. You know? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> One of the restaurateurs that I write about in this book and who was, who was so kind to give me a lot of his time was Jeffrey Yoskowitz, who is one of the co-founders of the Gefilteria, which is a business that, among other things, makes artisanal gefilte fish. Uh Um, And if your listeners aren't familiar, gefilte fish is white fish that's been cooked and formed into a a ball of some kind. It's it's kind of like a, a French canal, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Uh, (laughs) that's a good a good way to describe it yeah um you're you're probably if folks have have heard of gefilte fish they probably know it best from supermarket shelves because the Manischewitz company and and other companies made it shelf stable it's much much better as a fresh product or as a frozen one (laughs) as you can imagine since it's a fish but Jeffrey Yoskowitz it it not only is um, part of this business that sells these products but he's one of those folks has been doing a lot of online programming a lot of courses and he also organized right at the beginning of COVID in the in the summer he organized the great Jewish food fest online, which he was kind enough to, to let me come on and speak about speak as part of it. And it just got tens of thousands of listeners. It was, it was really amazing how many people were eager to, to talk about food and, and hear about Jewish food and, and what it means to people in their lives. Another thing that I thought was interesting, and this was a pre-COVID experience of mine, going to the visit museums, when we were, we're in our second home, the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is in its second home. And in its first home, we were in a mall and there was no way that we could have our own restaurant. But then as we got our own building and we were gonna move into this other place, the idea was we have to put in a restaurant because we wanted people and it had to have a bar because it's in New Orleans, number one, but number two, because you need to be able to get a drink and carry it around with you in the museum because it's just more pleasant. And so I was visiting museums that had restaurants that were reflective of the the mission or the idea of the museum. Not just, oh, there's an art museum. There's a little place where you can pick up a sandwich or you know some kind of food thing. I wanted them to be connected. So I went to the Jewish museum where Russ and Daughters has a little restaurant. And it very, it very much connected you to the museum. And it didn't feel disconnected the way, you know, you go to a a restaurant, especially in art museums, they usually don't even think about the relationship to food, even though they should. And you go there and you, you, you could be anywhere. You aren't in the museum anymore, you know, whereas when you went to Russ and Daughters as a part of the experience of the Jewish Museum, you felt like you were still in the museum and this was an extension of your experience. 
that's something that I also think was was smart of them to do that because it it worked. You know, I also went to other ones that didn't work. They were different <laughs> museums where they tried, but because um, the quality of the food still has to be good. You can't just have it all gimmicky. It has to be real. And exactly. That that was the big lesson that I took away from that that kind of exploration. I but, love that. Mm-hmm. But it's very much in line with what you have been talking about. Yes. I don't write about museums that have restaurants in the book, but I, it's very much in line with what I'm thinking about. I, first of all, I am so eager as soon as we're able to travel again, so eager to come down to your museum. It's just, I, I'm so eager to explore it for myself and to walk around with a drink in hand. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Truly. Um, Another example of this um, where I am here in San Francisco, the Contemporary Jewish Museum has its own deli, has Wise Sons Deli, which uh-huh. is another one of these places, like the ones I write in, the, in my write about in my book, that is is really rethinking the deli concept and it uh, and really an artisanal, local focus deli. And it works so well with the Contemporary Jewish Museum, which is also rethinking what it means to be a Jewish museum and has lots of contemporary artists. They don't have a permanent collection, so they always have lots of new and exciting art. The the best example, and I I will say I'm from Washington, I'm from outside Washington, D.C. originally, and my favorite example in this category is the um, National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., which has absolutely amazing, amazing Native American food that works so well with, with their exhibits. And, yeah. and that's really a treat. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I, this, this just made my, when we were, when I was reading the book, my, you know, my brain is just kind of going wild and also applying it to, to other large communities and all of that. So one of the things that I think is really interesting is that I think that books, cookbooks that are being written about this food are now being considered general interest cookbooks and not just marketed in small niches. It's something that I think has made people say, this is, this is part of a community. And then you can share in the community by going to a deli, or you can make the food or learn about the food and I also think that 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 is um, a particularly nice thing about food because we all know if you sit down together over a meal that you're sharing your culture, you're sharing your taste, you're sharing all kinds of things with people. And you don't actually do that with a cookbook, but you sort of do. And um, I I think that's also um, another way to extend the concept of food in, in that dimension that you've been discussing. I agree. And I, I love that. And since I'm making the argument in this book that engaging with these materials is and engaging with the, the certain emotional connection with the past that I think they want to teach you, I'm making the argument that that can function 
as religion. So that really brings up questions that I'm really interested in as a, as a religious studies scholar about what are the boundaries of religion? Really, what are the boundaries of community, right? What does it mean to participate in the narrative and in the emotional connection that one might have in a deli or, or reading or buying a cookbook, as you say, if you're, if you're not Jewish, right, you can become part of that story as well in a way that I think is really interesting and maybe, maybe seen as less, less threatening, right? Sometimes people get worried about the boundaries of religious communities. And mm -hmm. this one, let, as you say, lets people participate and lets people become part of that story, I think. Well, actually, I think all of the things that you pick to talk about are like that. I did go to the museum, the synagogue museum in Newport. And uh, this is even before I read this in your book. It, because uh, I think I went there 15 years ago or maybe longer ago, <laughs> they made a point of telling us that there was actually an active community that still worshiped in this building. And that meant something to me going there, feeling like it's still alive and it's not just a historic preservation project. You know, it was something that was, that was more than that. And I, I think that that is one of the nice things. You still got to share it and you share it with anybody who's interested enough to come. And I, I like that. And then also even the children's books I started looking at lists of children's books to get ready for this conversation. <laughs> and there are lots of things that are more almost general interest in the sense that they are, they tell a story, but you know, if you read the story of Cinderella, it's a story set in a certain time and a place and whatever. So this just becomes another story that's set in a certain time and place that teaches you about the world. And so you wouldn't say, oh, well, you can't read that book because you're not Jewish to the eight-year-old or whatever who wants to read the book. And so all of these things have that sort of, that, you know, I, I can't remember what it's called. There's a name for it. But uh, it was Yo-Yo Ma who noticed or read about or something that in all those places where two environments come together, that, um, and in this is talking about actual geographically, you know, when this kind of environment ends and this ecosystem begins, that crossover space are usually the richest because you have things from both sides that somehow can coexist in that very weird little boundary. So he began to invite people to play with him who played all kinds of instruments from all over the world. And these are often traditional instruments and they would maybe be five people that he had invited and they just jammed together. And he said it was inspiring and it gave you this richness and all of that sort of thing. And that's kind of the way I feel about the edges of this, you know, that it, it makes an edge that allows all kinds of new things to live. 
Yeah. Yeah. In religious studies, we use the word liminal, like a liminal space or a liminal Mm -hmm. encounter Mm -hmm. where you're, you're on the threshold, right. And exciting things happen on the threshold. And actually that's how I got interested in this project altogether. It started as way, way long time ago as my master's thesis on historic synagogues that were used as museums. And along many years later, it turned into this broader project on nostalgia as my dissertation. And and then eventually I finally published it as a book. But I was so interested in as a master's student at the University of Virginia in the idea of how this space could be a synagogue and a museum at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. What did it mean to have those overlapping categories? And it was like those, you know, those pictures where you're looking at a black and white picture and you're like, is it a woman or is it a duck? (laughs) (laughs) To me, that was so exciting. And I just wanted to figure out what was going on in here. Um, and, and that led to this whole journey. I realized that what I was really interested in was the emotions that people were feeling in these spaces and the emotions that, that they were being taught to feel in this space. And from there, I started to look at other spaces, other institutions where people were being taught similar feelings about the past. I thought also, yes, you define nostalgia and then you also talk about camp. And I found that to be really, really interesting. Um, and you took it so seriously, you know. Like, <laughs> Do that. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, well, you know, that's really, that's, there's, there's a whole lot of elements in there that are true, you know, and that maybe that's, uh, that unselfconsciousness and self-consciousness at the same time, you know, that kind of interesting. Oh, I, I love the perspective of someone from New Orleans on camp. I, I appreciate that so much. Yeah, I think about nostalgia as a sentimental longing for the past, for the irrevocable past, which is a thing I say a lot, but always makes me laugh because the past is, is always irrevocably past. That's how time works. But but with nostalgia, you're really you're you're really feeling how much it can't come back. You're feeling that longing, that pang of longing for what can't come back. And then when I'm thinking about camp, especially in terms of the, the artisanal delis, which which are are often pretty campy. I build on theorist Susan Sontag, who really theorizes camp so wonderfully. And she says it, it's a failed seriousness that, that you're in on the joke. Right. Uh, The difference between with kitsch, you know, it's just sentimental, right? And somebody else might be laughing at you for engaging in that sentimentality. They shouldn't, right? Kitsch is wonderful. But um, but with camp, you you embrace it. You you embrace the sentimentality and you embrace the the silliness in some ways. And you can be silly and serious at the same time. And that's really what I find when I think about these artisanal deli owners, that I think you can be, you can be doing things on multiple registers at once, right? You can be selling, you know, artisanal gefilte fish 
and and realize that that's that sounds pretty silly and it is pretty silly but at the same time say hey i'm engaging with my family's story with this bigger jewish story with this global story about sustainability and and also i think added to that you know you're somebody who's trying to make a living at this right and you're trying to you're, you're selling this stuff because you want to make money, right. hopefully enough to cover your costs, right? right. And I, I think recognizing that people can be um, can be doing something that's, that's so critically, meaningfully important to them and to others, and also doing it as a, as a commercial venture mm-hmm. and taking that seriously. Right. Um, you know, I think that helps us think about how people can do multiple <laughs> things at once. Right, right. No, I think you're right. Well, Rachel, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fabulous conversation. I feel like we could just talk and talk and talk. So this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Liz. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.